with that, we want to turn our attention now to the Word of God. If you have your Bible, will you join me by opening up to Colossians chapter 3. And if you need a Bible, of course, the guys are here, happy to put one in your hand so you can follow along with your eyes. We are going to read a a handful of verses that we covered last week in preparation for what we're covering this week. Chapter 3, I'm going to have us read verses 9, 10, and 11 together this morning, but can I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, 10, and 11. Let's read it together, shall we? Ready, begin. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, the work of your spirit this morning. These times in which we live where you are clearly, clearly calling your church to be watching and ready. And Lord, that we are gathered this morning, the privilege of that, the glory of that, and asking that you would just walk among us as you've promised to be wherever two or more are gathered in your name. That by your Holy Spirit to open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law and that we might hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. You may be seated. All right, so we are uh, in the second part of a series that began last week. Uh, we're calling this series uh, Living for Christ 101. Maybe it has to do with the fact that I have um, watched a couple of my, well, several of my grandchildren go through college recently in the last handful of years, and you just get that concept that, you know, a college course is, is a title and then 101. And so this is intended really to be informative but educational uh, to equip us really as it relates to what the Bible says uh, about being a Christian and how appropriate that in just a handful of weeks we're going to watch that film, The American Gospel, Christ Alone. Last week in the first part of this series, uh, we talked about that the entirety of the series deals with the put-offs and the put-ons of a walk with Jesus. The things that the scripture, by the grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit, command us to put off, and the things that, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, that we are to put on and clothe ourselves with. We, of course, saw last week, uh, as it related in verse 8, that we are to put off 
anger, malice, wrath, blasphemy, filthy language out of our mouth, and lying to one another. The entirety of the old man, the, that pre-ransomed um, individual that all of us may understand or may not, those of you who are watching at home may understand or may not, but that prior to uh, conversion, faith in Christ alone, we were bound to sin and had no option not to sin because there was no power at work in our life to keep us from the consequence and the decision to sin. But Christ in us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. As the apostles reaching out to this body of believers in Colossae to remind them that they are to put on the new man. And that there is no division in this new man within the body of Christ. We closed our study last week with talking about the, the huge divisive um, attempts in our nation today to divide camps, to, to bring various ideologies uh, across the table, the smorgasbord of different ideologies, and then have those variety of ideologies divide workplaces, divide schools, divide educational systems, divide societies, divide townships, divide churches, divide families. And that in Christ, there is no division. We are one. We are one body in Christ. And so Paul now moves to, as we move forward into the second part about what, not what we're to put off, but what we are to put on as professing Christians that say, yes, I, I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I have been born again. I am a Christian. If those are your declarations, I was watching something last night that, interestingly enough, uh, uh, Amir at Safari said that he's been to the Philippines and in the Philippines they ask you, are you Catholic or are you born again? Here in America, I'm just going to ask you, are you born again? Because if you are, then you are a Christian. And if you are a Christian, then these things, which it immediately gets us into the, the what we are to be doing in life. So I draw your attention now to verse 12, which our passage this morning is going to hopefully cover verses 12 through 17. And I'd like to read through it with you all the way. Verse 12 says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. 
And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now you and I would might just say, well, that's, that's just enough. We can, you know, leave it right there, and we could. But I'm going to take a few minutes this morning to open this up a little for us. And bringing you and I back to verse 12, when Paul says, therefore, again, pointing backwards to all of the things that have been uh, declared, and because of the putting on of the new man, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. This brings us to a subject that is certainly worthy of discussion this morning, and it is having to do with the understanding of the elect of God. Up on your screen you can see there are really two views when it comes to uh, this subject, election or predestination, they often fall in the category of what we would call Calvinism or Arminianism. And I'd like to talk briefly with you about those two different views of the approach to salvation. Uh, in the 1700s, uh, as John Calvin and others wrestled with the theological truths of salvation, what developed uh, was called Calvinism or also referred to as Reformed theology. And in Calvinism or Reformed theology, there were uh, five letters that were formed in the, the uh, layout of an acronym that can be pronounced tulip. And they represent the five points of the Calvinist view of salvation. Whereas over in Arminianism or predestination, there is clearly one view. And I'd like to you know, let you both see the differences this morning because it's important. The five points of Calvinism teach these things. Number one, the T stands for total depravity. Uh, according to Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, man, apart from God, before salvation, is totally depraved. Man, apart from Christ, is depraved. There is no such thing as a good human being. This is what this uh, theology teaches. Now, maybe this morning you came through those doors or you're watching on TV. Well, wait a minute. You're saying that no one is good. Uh, you've heard the phrase, oh, they're, they're good at heart. Or, you know, they're, they're a good, decent person. Well, as it relates to the holiness of God, 
The scriptures tell us that there are none good, no, not one. And so total depravity means that all of humankind is depraved. There probably would be no objection to that to most Christian thought today. That no, you look around the world and no, apart from Christ, uh, indwelling the person, mankind is depraved. The U stands for the second uh, belief system, which is called unconditional election, also known as sovereign election. I'll read to you what the uh, Calvin, Calvinist uh, states. It says that according to Ephesians 1.5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. In other words, under unconditional election, salvation is not brought about by any action or decision of the human being. That it's unconditional. It's, it's, it's God's work completely. There's no volition or choice involved in, in the act. Now, alongside of that, or in debate of that, we would have to consider 2 Peter 3.9 that says that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, his promise to return, his promise to come for those who have placed their faith in him. 2 Peter 3.9, he says, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Bible teaches that the heart of God is that there would not be one person that doesn't receive the offer of salvation. Not one. God would that every human being ever born since the beginning of time and more even pointedly since the time of the cross would come to know Christ as the Messiah and Savior and that none would perish. Under unconditional election, the option of, of someone choosing is set to the side. The third letter, L, stands for limited atonement. Now, this is an interesting concept. It says that it also is called definite atonement, and I'll read it. Uh, I think some of it's up here for us. Is that Christ's atoning death was meant for the salvation of all, but is limited in its ability to accomplish this. Well, we'd have to agree because if someone rejects the atonement that Christ offers on the cross, then that atonement cannot be applied to that life, parentheses, because of the rejection of the truth. Or, another way of saying it is that the intent of the atonement was limited to fully redeeming all of God's elect. In other words, it's limited to those who receive the atonement itself. The fourth letter is I, and it stands for irresistible grace. And what is taught under the Calvinistic point of view or Reformed theology is that God's grace is irresistible. That no one can be saved unless they are first drawn to God by Christ. And Jesus said that in John 6, 44. He said, no man comes to the Father uh, unless the Father draws him. That's true. 
But irresistible grace goes on to take it a step further and says that no one uh, can resist the grace of God indefinitely. In other words, irresistible grace uh, does not teach that God's calling cannot be resisted for a period of time, but that this resistance will ultimately be overcome. In short, that God's sovereign election is not contingent upon our response. Now, we would have to place alongside of that, of course, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10 that says, in the last days, the days in which we're living even now, that the coming of lawlessness is uh, according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because, 2 Thessalonians 2.10, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 infers that there must be a reception of the truth, an act of volition, a choice to receive the truth that I'm hearing, the truth that I'm understanding, the truth about sin, about mankind, about the fallen nature, about the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and my willingness to receive that truth. The last letter in the acronym stands for the perseverance of the saints, P, and it teaches that a person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ immediately obtains eternal life and that they cannot be lost. But to clarify the theological position of the acronym, they go on to say, those who do appear to permanently fall away from the faith were never true believers. According to 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. And so there is this embracing of if someone is saved, they can never lose that salvation. But if they act like they're saved for a while and then that changes, then they weren't truly saved. Our dear late founder of Calvary Chapel, Pastor Chuck, used to just put it this way, uh, once saved, always saved, if truly saved. And we can't ignore the parable that Jesus gave us in Luke's gospel in chapter 15 as, it, as he referred to the prodigal child who, in that uh, parable, though applied to real life situation, in that parable, the son was a part of the family. The son had all the inheritances of, that the family was to give him. And yet the son chose to squander that inheritance and to live uh, progenially, if you will, for a, a, a long period of time until the son came to the end of himself. And when that choice took place in that child, that adult, that person's heart and mind, 
where the choice was to return. If I just go back to my father's house, I, I could live there better than where I, how I'm living here with the pigs. That when he came down the road, you all know the story. The father saw him coming and didn't just sit there with his arms closed, you know, told you so. No. He ran after him threw his arms around, embraced him, put a ring on his finger, slaughtered the fatted calf and said, my son who was lost is found. My son who was dead is alive again. So you take those five points of Calvinism and say, okay, well, there's a variety of truths in there, but there's, there's, an antithesis to some of the truth that is declared, and you bring that to uh, compare with Arminianism, okay? Calvinism versus Arminianism, it, which means election versus predestination. Arminianism, at the beginning of the 17th century, the Dutch theologian Jacobus Arminius formulated this. Uh, theological position and disagreed with Calvin strongly uh, in particular on election and predestination and stated that predestination in Arminianism is based on divine foreknowledge unlike Calvinism it is therefore a predestination by foreknowledge and what this means, I'll read it, is that God does not predetermine, but instead infallibly knows who will believe and, uh, and perseveringly be saved, although God knows from the beginning uh, of the world who will go where the choice is still with the individual. And so I bring us to Romans 8, which tells us, I'll read the whole thing, Romans 8, 28, tells us And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these also he called, whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. It almost boils down to the, the question, you know, did, did Jesus choose you or did you choose Jesus? Now, in John 15, 16, Jesus tells us very clearly, he says, 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. He was talking to his disciples. And clearly throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus made a specific point of the choice of those disciples. But once our Savior crucified on a cross, buried in a tomb, resurrected the third day to put death, hell, and the grave to defeat and offer salvation to all mankind. Once that took place and the Holy Spirit of God was poured out on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem as the 120 were up in the room and they, they came out into the streets and the people in Jerusalem, they were speaking in, in other tongues And all of the society there in Jerusalem, Medes, Parthians, many societies did hear them speak in another tongue, glorifying God. They were asking, what must we do to be saved? And Peter said, Acts 3, 19, Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come. He was speaking to a plethora of society. Did you choose Christ or did Christ choose you? Yes. Both positions are taught in the scripture. And I, I love, you know, the years that we did some ivory tower pounding out of these theological truths, because that's what they are. They're kind of like ivory tower truths. It's like, really, do we need to know this? I mean, why do we need to know this? Is this important? Well, sure, it's extremely important to have a clear, sound, theological position on to know why you're saved and how you're saved. And a couple of years down there at Costa Mesa with Pastor Chuck, he would come in for two years. We went through the book of Acts. Two years. Oh, my goodness. It was so rich. So, I mean, he would sit and just uh, expound on a, a verse by verse for two years, for an hour and a half, every Thursday morning. And Pastor Chuck used to say, you know, that he himself wrestled with this concept of Arminianism versus Calvinism, election versus predestination. I don't know where you sit if you've ever considered these things. Maybe you have never considered these things. Maybe they're not important to you, but, but for us Bible teachers, they become very important. I remember Pastor Chuck saying, you know, one night he was wrestling through, which is a God, which is a God? And he says he, he, he got to a place where he picked up his Bible and he threw his Bible across the room and said, I can't reconcile the two. And he heard the whisper of the voice of God say, I never asked you to reconcile the two. Because they both exist. I just ask you to believe. And you might say, what does that have to do with me walking with Christ? 
And this is Paul's point. Is that the elect of God. Therefore, as the elect of God. Meaning that it is this broad society. No longer just an individual class of people. No longer just an individual nation of people. If you are his this morning, you are part of the elect of God. And if you are a part of the elect of God, he says then, draw your attention, in verse 12, put on tenderness, tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. Clothe yourself with these things. One commentator puts it so clearly, he says, it is most significant to note that every one of these graces listed has to do with personal relationship between man and man, but our relationships with one another. There is no mention of virtues like efficiency, cleverness, diligence, or industry. Not that these virtues are not important, but the great basic Christian virtue are those which govern human relationship. Make uh, tender mercies instead of judgment. When someone is across your life path and your first inclination is to judge their faults, as the elect of God were to put on tender mercy. Kindness instead of harshness. When someone is across your life path, whom in your heart of hearts you would love to just give them, you know, what for? No, we're to clothe ourselves with kindness. Humility instead of arrogance. Humility is arrogance under control. Every human being deals with an amount of, of personal pride and their worth and how good they are or well they do something. And yet to bring that under submission to the Spirit of God because of the person of Christ indwelling us, it is to bring uh, humility is arrogance under control. Meekness is strength under control. Meekness, as we've read in the, in the Gospels, that Jesus was meek, right? And I was talking with my grandson recently. He's reading a book about how even in the uh, Christian church, we've, we've kind of uh, altered the meaning of this meekness of Christ a bit for our, our male masculinity that we've sought to turn it into being softer or, or effeminate, actually, and that Jesus was in no way uh, not all man, right? He was all guy. He was all man, and that in no way, by allowing the person of Jesus to indwell us and live in us men, guys, I'm speaking to you this morning, are we to just be mamsy-pamsies? Or embrace a feminism. 
or to set our masculinity to the side. We are called to be, Jesus was also a, a, a victor. He was a, a warrior. He was a lion. Meekness is that strength under control, coupled with long-suffering, which we know, of course, is patient. And God has been patient with you and me, with each one of us. Has he not been patient with you? Did he not wait and wait and wait until you decided to seek him? Verse 13, probably one of the hardest as it relates to living out the Christian faith. It says, and add to this, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Notice how it says, if anyone has a complaint against another. Anyone. That means no Christian is justified in holding unforgiveness in their heart. Let me say it again. No Christian is justified in harboring unforgiveness in your heart toward anyone. Hebrews tells us that unforgiveness in the heart just creates embitterment. And by that, many are defiled. One commentator says, think of how Christ forgave you and I. God reaches out to bad people to bring forgiveness to them. God makes the first move toward us in forgiveness. God forgives often knowing that we will sin again. God's forgiveness is so complete and glorious that he grants adoption to those who have formerly offended him. God keeps reaching out to man for reconciliation even when man refuses again and again. God requires no probationary period to receive his forgiveness. God's forgiveness offers complete restoration and honor. And once having been forgiven, God puts his trust in us and invites us back to be co-laborers with him. I love what Charles Spurgeon put. He put it this way. Suppose someone came to you who had grievously offended you, any one of you, and that he asked for your forgiveness. Do you think that you would probably say to him, well, yes, I forgive you, but I don't forget Spurgeon says, ah, dear friend, that is a sort of forgiveness uh, with, ah, dear friends, that is a sort of forgiveness with one leg chopped off. It is a lame forgiveness and it is worth nothing. And so Paul makes his point clear to the Colossian believer as the Spirit of God would make his point clear to us this morning, that above all of that, the clothing that we're to put on is the agape love of God. Verse 14. Above all, put on. The agape love of God. And I would view this Indwelt, you know, we read in Scripture that God is love. And so the agape love is an unselfish love. It's an, it's an unconditional love. It's a love that does not need to receive in order to be given. 
Now that's different than what most of us are used to. A love that does not need to receive in order to be given. Agape love. And that this agape love is kind of like, it's the binder circles. The agape love of God is like the binder circles that, that hold all the rest of this together. Kindness, meekness. Forgiveness. It says in verse 15, he says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called. It's an invitation to the believer to let the peace of God rule. And as, you know, earlier, uh, just a couple months back, we were going through the book of Philippians. And I ask you right now, just turn a couple pages to your left to Philippians 4. He's like, well, how does the peace of God give um, rule in my life? How am I to let the peace of God rule? Here's how you're to let the peace of God rule. Chapter 4, verse 6 of Philippians, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, stop being anxious about tomorrow, or about today, or about our the state of the affairs that we live in and, and what's going to happen in schools with, you know, the, the vaccine mandate. What's going to happen in travel with the, the mandates? What's going to happen to taxes? What's going to happen? What, 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 what? You know, you, if all you watch is secular news, you're going to be an anxious wreck. No doubt, if that's all you take in, you'd just be so filled with anxiety. What's going to happen? What, what, what? The command under the Spirit of God is be anxious for how much? Nothing. But in everything, By prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. The promise there is if we do this, God's peace does that. Want to know what to think about? He tells us in verse 8, the things that are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, good report, and that are praiseworthy. Let God's peace rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Verse 16 of Colossians 3, we're back there. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts. What a beautiful thing it is to sing the word of God. Hymns are so filled with solid theological truth 
the praise songs as well bring some of that to the table. To sing the word of God is so, so valuable, but to let the word dwell in you richly. Here's a challenge for each of us today. Ready? I'll, I'll do it with you because I wouldn't ever ask you to do something that I won't do myself. So pick a chapter of the Bible and take this week to memorize it. Oh, wait a minute, Pastor. You said ch- 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 chapter? You know, how about a verse? No, take a chapter. You ready? Chapter of the Bible. Psalm 1. Blessed is man. Right? How about John 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning. Pick a chapter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do Psalm 1 and John 1. And I'm going to stand before you next, well, probably not next Sunday. We have special guests. Two weeks. You get two weeks to do this. Okay, two weeks. To pick a chapter. And then two weeks, stand up, and I'll call on you. You can stand up. No, I won't do that. But I'm going to recite a chapter for you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It can't dwell unless you put it in. So you've got to put it in there. You ready to take a challenge? I hope so, because he closes with, and whatever you do, and we're going to close it this morning, verse 17 of Colossians, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What does that mean? Just tag Jesus' name onto everything? It means that you are a representative of the living Christ. When you go to work, you go to school, you go to home, you go to church, you go to play, whatever it is, in all that you do, remember that, oh no, you know, it's not just God and me, kind of like on Sunday and a little bit with my Bible study and a point here, a point there. All things that you do, remember you and I do them in the name of, as a representative of, as an ambassador for Christ. And if you're like me, you say this morning, Lord, that's, that's above me. I, I can't do that. You're right. I can't either. But Christ in you. And that's why we come to this table. We say, Lord, I remember what you did for me and you said, Because you live in me, I can be your witness. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. The Spirit of God feels. So we come to this table this morning to say, thank you for that cross, Lord. Cause me this week to be this, living for Christ, 101, by putting on Tender mercies, kindness, meekness, forgiveness. By letting your peace rule in my heart, your word dwell in me richly. And as I go, I'm your ambassador. Let's prepare our hearts to take communion together. Will you pray with me? Lord, how necessary it is 
for us to come to this communion table often. You said that as often as you do this, that we are to remember you. And so this morning we come simply remembering who you are, what you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness, your patience. Thank you for your blood and your body by which our faith in your blood and our declaration of your resurrected body promises us eternity with you and a power to live for you here on this earth. Lord, this morning we're simply by taking this cup and this bread once again saying to you, have your way in our lives from today forward. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.